Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, Focused Compounding, sitting next to Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? Uh, it's going very well, Andrew. How's it going for you? It's going great. We hope it's going great for everybody else as well. If this is the first time that you're tuning in with the both of us, make sure you hit the subscribe button, both on the podcast and the YouTube side of things, and leave us a rating and review. I want to jack up those numbers. So if you're listening and you want to pay us back for all the content that we've put out, we are coming up on 300 episodes which is pretty crazy. The one that we're recording right now, I believe will be 297 or 298. So we're almost at 300. And if you want to give thanks, the best way you could do that is by leaving us a rating and review. If it's not going to be a five stars, don't even do that. We don't even okay. want the rating and review. So preferably five star rating and review. Thank you so much for all the support. Um, pretty crazy. 300. Can you believe that? Mm -hmm. Absolutely insane. So um, in today's podcast, we're going to be going over Buffett's early investments, and we're going to be using our friends Jake Madonna's book, Capital Allocation. We have a PDF version of it that we're going to be going through. I redacted a lot of um, you know the, the chapters and stuff because I don't want people to think they could just watch our videos without buying his book. Seriously, go buy his book. We really love it. It's on Amazon. I'm going to put the link in the description. He so graciously gave us this book so we could talk about it and create content out of it. So support Jacob. Go to Amazon and type in Capital Allocation. Uh, first time that we actually talked about this book, we were on a research trip. I think we we're in Nashville, I believe. Mm -hmm. And it was funny because I think you read it like three times because you had nothing else to read. Yeah. He gave us the book in Nashville. We, we met him at a hotel there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So go check it on Amazon. I'm going to put the link in the description. Um, so we're going to be talking about Buffett's Berkshire investment, the transition of Buffett taking over the company, uh, National Indemnity Sun newspaper and Blacker Printing Company and all those early uh, companies. But today's podcast, we're going to be talking about Berkshire Hathaway and actually like what it looked like when he actually made the investment himself. Um, I have, if you're watching on YouTube right now, we'll try talking out loud. Uh, so if you're listening on the podcast side of things that, you know, it'll still be worthy to listen to. Um, but here's the financial statements. And really, this is what I wanted to get out of uh, Jacob sending me this book was I just wanted all the figures of the companies. Okay. Um, he tracked a lot of, you know, uh, Moody's manuals down and going and doing research and going to libraries and stuff to put all of it into this book. Um, but Berkshire was super capital intensive. Inventories were about 41.6% of assets in 1955. And PP&E was 30.2%. Receivables were 9.7%. Um, uh, so Buffett started looking at this, I think at the, he started investing, uh, when did I say I have it? I think he started buying it. Yeah. He first bought Berkshire shares, uh, at $7 and 51 cents near the end of 1962. So this is what the balance sheet looked like. Um, is there anything that sticks out to you or jumps out at you? Um, well, uh, the only, th I mean, it basically it's an, I mean, it's a net net yeah. and we knew that. So no, it doesn't jump out to me other than the, that fact. If you know that about why Buffett bought into Berkshire in the first place, which is that it's a net net, that's the stuff that stands out here. It's pretty typical of what a net net looks like. It has a lot of, um, the assets in, in the current assets, like we said, a lot of inventory, which is, um, as we'll see, uh, the important part, he had been already invested in Dempster Mill, I guess, by this point. Mm -hmm. So same sort of, um issue which is that if you have a lot of inventories is what you're buying when you buy into a net net then it depends on whether you can liquidate those inventories reasonably quickly or if the business improves so mm -hmm. so it's not a net net with a lot of cash for instance 
Yeah. At the beginning of 1955, Berkshire was selling for in the market $14.75 per share, which put a value on the company at about $33.8 million. Uh, but it also had a book value of $51.4 million and mm -hmm. net current assets of $33 million. So trading right at that net current asset level, uh, but definitely below book value. Um, and you know, to your point about it being a traditional net-net, Berkshire earned $300,000 in 1955, which was about 0.5% of assets, and return on right. equity was basically the same. Um, and profits for the company were hard to come by. I have that they... From 1955 to 1961, Berkshire um, lost 1.5 million over that period on 441.4 million in sales. Yeah, Berkshire's interesting when he bought into it. In some ways, it's not an especially good net net. In other ways, it is. As a business, its earnings on its assets and things like that was actually poor, even poorer than I've seen in many net nets I've invested in. It's much worse than the record of any net net I've invested in. However, there's some statistical stuff showing that that's fine, that buying net nets that lose money or that make barely any money works at least as well as buying net nets that are more profitable. Um, but the thing that was positive about it, which we can get into, is the capital allocation. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't piling up cash and things like that. If it did generate, if it would generate cash, even when it didn't have earnings, it would use that to um, buy back stock. Um, it was uh, closing mills, things like that. Yeah, you talk about, or we've talked about on the podcast a lot, how Buffett gets interested. And in, I don't want to compare like 90-year-old Buffett to mm -hmm. when he's doing this, um, you know, in call it late 50s, early 60s, but how he gets really interested in situations when the capital allocation changes. Right. So they decided that they were going to stop reinvesting uh, so much in their mills. I think they were investing really just like maintenance capex or updating, maybe making some of the stuff a little bit more modern. Okay. But for the most part, they were closing unprofitable mills and taking yeah. the excess cash to pay out dividends and pay back or buy back shares as well. Right. And you almost never find that and that's buying back stock. Mm -hmm. It almost never happens. Yeah, so you could see right here from 1955 to 1961, they paid out a total of about nine million in dividends, uh, while also buying back about seven point seven million dollars uh, of their own shares during that time frame as well. So total amount return was about sixteen point seven million um, uh, to shareholders. You don't see that a lot with net nets, do you? No, it never happens with net nets. So this is a particularly bad net net in terms of the business performance, but particularly good in terms of the capital allocation because it's shrinking down, it's buying back stock, um, which is having the effect of basically shrinking the balance sheet and will tend to improve returns on capital. A big reason why buying net nets works, people always talk about them as like liquidating, but the bigger reason why it works is because the company itself and its competitors will usually reduce the amount of capital they have in the business, mm -hmm. which increases your returns on capital. Everyone always thinks about returns on capital going up because you generate more sales, more earnings per dollar of capital. But the other way of doing it is taking capital out of the business. And so when a business is particularly bad, that's usually what happens. And so um, most net nets are more of a problem that way. They might actually be growing a little bit, but the business is getting worse. They're not buying back stock. Net nets almost never buy back stock because if you buy back stock for long, you're probably not going to stay a net net. It would stop, you know, it stop you from continuing to be mm -hmm. a net net. People would probably, um, uh, investors would probably buy your stock. Mm -hmm. You see that a lot in banks too to keep their return on equity high. Sometimes they'll pay a special dividend or something like that. Right, banks would have to do that absolutely. So getting it to you know when they 
acknowledge this from the 1962 annual report. They say Berkshire Hathaway continues to be in a strong financial position, and it is expected that the company will have current assets in excess of its requirements during the coming year because of the decrease in the number of plants operated and the anticipated reduction in our inventories. It would seem prudent under the circumstances to use the excess assets to reduce the number of shares of stock outstanding. Mm -hmm. So, um, so Buffett started getting interested in it. Yeah. Um, uh, and uh, we can go down and see here's their sales right so it's basically like they're just you know they're shrinking so they're closing plants 1955 sales was 65.4 million and in 1961 um sales is 47.7 million so right. uh, so negative they dropped by about, like 25 yeah. percent overall yeah. yeah uh capex but not putting a lot back into the business uh 15.1 million from 1955 to 1961 they decide that they're going to stop opening up plants and basically close on profitable ones and shift their capital allocation, start to buy back stock. Mm -hmm. um, Buffett, where was he at in his career at this point? So BPL was established. He yes, was already pretty wealthy you. himself. This was mm -hmm. probably more so to, towards the end of his hedge fund days. Yeah, he probably was just barely a millionaire at this point, personally. Um, I think that's right. So adjusted for inflation, you know, that, that's a lot, a lot more now. But mm -hmm. um, yeah, he probably had a little over a million dollars in net worth. Um, he had consolidated all the partnerships at this time just recently. And, um, you know, it's still probably 80 to 85 percent of the partnership money wasn't his personal money. You know, he probably owned a smaller stake than 20 percent overall, but he had put his own money into it at this point. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so. Throughout the process, BPL owns a very large chunk of Berkshire. Seabury Stan, who's the president and chairman of Berkshire at the time, since they're buying back their stock, he reaches out to Buffett. Mm -hmm. They strike up a deal, it sounds like. Berkshire agreed to buy all of Buffett's shares at $11.50. It's so weird when you talk about it in this context. Like Berkshire okay. agreed to buy Buffett's shares. Yeah. Um, when the deal officially arrived in the mail, um, they quoted him $11.50. Point three seven five. Right, and that's because uh, stocks weren't quoted in um, pennies at the time. Yeah, so they yeah. were they under eighth cut his. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's it's one it's one eighth difference. So stocks were quoted in eighths back then. Yeah, this is a really interesting time in Buffett's life. If you read the snowball, what he mm -hmm. personally was going through. I think his father just passed away. That or yeah. he was about to. He was either dying or had just died at that point. Yeah, and Buffett was super stressed. I said hair was falling out of his you know, head and he was mm -hmm. having bald spots. Um, uh, so instead of, you know, tendering his shares to the company, selling them, um, BPL continued to buy stock and eventually, you know, started the process of taking control of the company mm -hmm. and getting on the board. It seemed very personal to him. He started buying at a record pace and this whole situation was personal. And he talked about it too. I think at a different annual meeting later, like years later, Saying he didn't know if there was any correlation, but it was when he was going through a very challenging time with his dad passing and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. And it got him annoyed because I don't think he would have bought the I don't think he would have bought into Berkshire in the first place if they hadn't been buying back their stock. So the possibility they were buying back their stock meant he could sell into those tenders. Mm -hmm. He had bought stock in other companies in the past, uh personally, actually, even um before his partnership that were buying back stock and things like that. He had done that a few times. And been attracted to companies that were involved in transactions like that. 
Um, there's a bus company where he did that. He did that with Rockwell, which is the chocolate company, things like that. Uh, so I, the tender obviously got his attention, I think. And like I said, it's very unusual for NetNet. He had done Dempster Mill, mm-hmm. um, and he had done Sanborn. And also his partnership, if you look at the size of the assets at this time versus the size of Berkshire at this time, it would, he was getting up in assets a little bit where it was going to need to do things like this, I guess you could say. Um, maybe a little bit more stretched that way, right? But the market wasn't super expensive at this point. Um, it was not bad. It was pretty um, average price at this time. In a few years from this, it gets to be where it's difficult to find things. But at this point, he probably still could have found other stuff to do besides doing what he did with Berkshire. Do you think it's surprising that he decided to go activist mode on Berkshire, considering his experience with Dempster Mills and how you know, it sounds like that was an awful experience for him because everybody hated him in the town and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think he probably did get personally annoyed about it and he was already in for a lot of it. Um, we can get into more detail about it later, but it was important to improve the operations in the sense of getting rid of um, inventory and taking some costs out of the business. Uh, as we said, the returns were really poor. So it wasn't on an earning basis good, but it was cheap versus the assets. So actually a lot of his earnings from Berkshire in the very early years after he took it over came from cost reductions. So it was important to get in there and do something about it. Um, so once he was in it, once he wasn't selling out, I'm not surprised he went activist. Um, you could say, is this surprise he didn't take it? I don't know if it's his person I take a deal when someone... Um, tries to give you, you know, 90 some percent of what they said they were going to do. Why do you think that happened? Because he thought he could get it. I mean, because, you know, we know people like that. They think they could get a little bit more from it. So they try. Mm-hmm. And that's what he was trying. I mean, he may, Seabury Stanton, he may have thought that, you know, if he didn't sell out, that maybe he sells out to him. And if he doesn't, then maybe he comes back to you, but he wouldn't try to take over your company. Mm hmm. Yeah. We had experience with that, kind of similar to that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. I think we said a price for something like three times. Yeah. And the other, you know, party or whatever had their own price. And I just said, oh, this is all we're paying. Sorry. And then yeah. I think we went back and forth like three times. And I said, if you change your mind, let us know. Like, it's not, that wasn't even like a, a, neg- a negotiating thing. It was like, this is literally all we're going to pay. Yeah. And then finally, okay, let's do it. Yeah. Buffett tells a story that he gave, you know, five cents more, you know, $35 and five cents or something on a deal because of investment bank complaining that they want it, you know, they've been hired to after the fact basically. And so they needed to get a higher offer from him for mm-hmm. a company. And he said that he gave him five cents, but so basically doesn't increase the amount that he has there. But yeah, a lot of people probably get, you know, I mean, it's not a good business. Maybe he figured, uh, Stan figured that, um, he would sell out. Yeah possibly it's interesting though from i guess a business perspective and buffett's talked about this a lot too where you name your price and you don't change on it so he has a reputation of doing that so anyone that's going to negotiate with him knows whatever he names it's not going to change and i think he said that you may miss out on deals in the short term right but in the long term it's more worth it to do it like that yeah and that's probably true um but obviously someone dealing with him then didn't know that and Made a mistake. And what ended up happening? Job. He asks, what ended up happening to him? <laughs> yeah. uh, by 1965, BPL owned over half of the company, Berkshire Hathaway, and Buffett joined the board. 
By early 1966, BPL owned 552,528 shares or 54.3% of the company. This stake in Berkshire was acquired at an average cost of $14.86 per share, reflecting higher prices paid by BPL in 1965. Mm -hmm. And then what did he do when he, you know, uh, to control the company. What happened from there? So a few things. One, technically, if I remember correctly, um, he actually minimized the amount of changes that he made with the board and stuff. So I believe for the first few years, he ran it just by running the executive committee. He actually didn't officially um, take over a different... I mean, if officially, for instance, if you read the earliest letters, they're not under his name, even though clearly he's the one writing them. Mm, you know, you yeah. can tell that it's clearly him. So we're going to go over the uh, okay. Illinois Bank. Yeah. And I have the letters from it. And it's so funny. In like the first couple years or whatever, I'm like, this is totally Buffett, right? Okay. Yeah. yeah. So it doesn't appear under his name. So yeah. I, um, We're talking about the Illinois Bank from Berkshire. Yeah. yeah and basically he left um, he left people uh, on the board. Anyone who wasn't outright hostile to him got to stay on the board, basically. So there were still people connected with the earlier days of Berkshire who stayed in for a long time. Um, so he did not necessarily do any of that stuff, but then they did make changes. The biggest change is who was running the company. And so he picked someone to run the company who was basically, you know, I guess you could say second in charge or whatever, who he had met before already. And then, um, that was his biggest decision, right? Mm -hmm. Is who he chose to run the company. The person that was basically like the general manager doing everything on the day to day basis. Yeah. So, and I think a big factor in that is, um, that he understood the difficulties of the business and was honest with him about it before uh, when he showed him around as a shareholder at that point. I mean, I, I, if I remember correctly from the snowball and stuff, it's, I don't think it's discussed here in this book, but he already knew when he was talking to Ken Chase that um, he would, uh, he basically told him, I'm going to, you know, at the next board meeting, I'm going to have the votes and things like that. Um didn't Munger recommend him to Buffett? Is that how that worked out? I don't know if that's true. Yeah. Um, but I, I'm sure that he liked that he was honest with him about the difficulties of the business. Mm. Because, you know, Buffett wasn't interested in putting more money into the textile business, I think. Whatever happened to Ken Chase? I don't know any details about him after. I mean, he's he'd been quoted in things at 20 years. At, you know, so, I mean, he worked for Berkshire, for Buffett for 20 years. Then they shut down the textiles. And I've seen some quotes from him about that. And basically he kind of said, I don't know why he left. I don't know why he picked me in the first place. And I don't know why he left it open as long as he did. But, you know. I wonder, was it more so Buffett just saying, Ken, go do this and report back to me? Or do you think he was pretty hands off with it? Oh, in the early years, I don't get the impression he was hands off at all. Mm -hmm. No. Um, I think he said that, that, you know, um, he was not hands off. And definitely he would, seems to have been approving any capital expenditures, mm -hmm. you know, put more money into it. Yeah. Got it. So I guess looking at this, right. So when you see a net net, and I guess you don't really come across a lot of net nets like this today, but basically net net trading under book value, buying right. back stock, mm -hmm. changing the capital allocation, paying dividends. It seems like it was a, of course, with the benefit of hindsight, right. A perfect last puff of the cigar, if you will. Yeah, and as Jacob, uh, the author of this book, mentions, you know, a few years before uh, Buffett bought in and everything from the time when he took over, if you had bought and then sold, you could have made a lot of money then. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's a typical net net that way. It, from If you look at the cheapest point it got into in the early 60s, um, you would have done really well 
buying and then selling a few years later. So it's not even like Buffett's average cost in it is as low as the as cheap as the stock was. Mm -hmm. So that's typical of net nets. You would have done really well even if you got a really mediocre outcome. Um, yeah, if you look at it, um, nineteen sixty two, he started buying mm -hmm. at an average cost of seven dollars and fifty one cents. Right, and if he just would have took the offer of you know, yeah. whatever it was eleven point three seven five, that's a right. pretty good return. Yes. So you know you're up whatever that is uh, one point five times or something in you know, a matter of a couple of years. A couple of years. Yeah. yeah. So you did well. Um, and that's, and if you look, there's other times where that happened with Berkshire, which is typical of net nets. So it's pretty easy to make a 50% return or whatever. Um, but the danger is that they start losing lots of money and things like that. If you looked at it though, it, it wasn't in that bad a financial situation. The interesting thing is if you see that chart right there, where it just shares outstanding, yeah, that's, that's right. the part that's really unusual. So if you look at that, you can see how shares outstanding and how they've been going down over time and how much that's a really dramatic decrease. And the number of shares outstanding mm. then that's totally unusual for net nets that really doesn't happen then buying back a lot of their stock yeah that's a thing with buybacks that has changed you know people talk about buffett being very positive on buybacks he was positive on buybacks in the 60s 70s and into the 80s when buybacks were very different companies that are net nets don't buy back their stock and companies that are expensive and doing well do buy back their stock today and it, you know, it used to be different that way. The only companies that were buying back their stock were really cheap, and they were doing it because they realized they were really cheap. Part of me feels like managers today that buy back their stock, a lot of times it's just like a signaling thing to the market, as opposed to we think our business is you know, trading cheaper, they, undervalued or they, intrinsic value. Yeah, and they often talk about it as returning capital to mm -hmm. shareholders. Yeah, exactly, which was not the point of it before. That wasn't what they did. And, and also it's changed in terms of it used to be done a lot more through tender offers. As you can see here with Berkshire, it was a tender offer, um, which I think is probably a better way of doing it than open market purchases. But that's how they do it now is open market purchases. Mm -hmm. So final takeaways from this situation? Uh, it was a poor business. Uh, I don't know that I would have invested in it. We didn't get into it, but they had a very big cost disadvantage in, in, in two ways. So Berkshire was not a small company. Uh, Berkshire Hathaway, actually, if you look at its history, had once been very big and was big in textiles. This is not a small company, actually. I, I know that today it sounds like a microcap and stuff, but if you adjust for inflation, it wasn't that small. If you adjust for the fact of how big it was years before, this company had shrunk. So it was a big business in the 1950s, the, the businesses they put together, the two businesses. Um, but it was at a disadvantage in terms of costs, both with the South, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, so the Southern United States was now a better place to produce textiles than New England, which New England had been the place where you do textiles for at this point, what, uh, you know, almost 200 years. Um, and also with Asia. As I mentioned, Japan, I think, had much lower cost. Is that what you have there, that paragraph? Yeah. Yeah, it says, according to the 1955 annual report, Japanese workers were paid less than 15 cents per hour, while the minimum wage in the U.S. at the time was a dollar per hour. The low-cost operator wins with producing a commodity product, and Berkshire and his domestic competitors stood no chance against foreign competition in this aspect. Yeah, and I think Munger's talked about electricity costs, too, with the South. So after World War II, uh, around World War II on after the New Deal, um, I think that electricity costs would have been significantly lower in parts of the South that would have been producing textiles versus New England, and that would have been a big disadvantage too, um, as those costs are pretty significant. Um, electricity and labor are pretty significant costs in the way the textiles were made back then. Yeah, yeah. I mean, your materials cost and your materials cost, but um, it it would be 
poorly positioned, right? And if it wanted to catch up to those other things, how can it do it? How If it has such a bad labor position, it means you need CapEx and stuff, right? So the business was in a tough spot, right? And it's a total commodity business. If you remember, this company basically makes like suit linings and things like that. Yeah. So think about that. You know what they're talking about when they say suit linings. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. So it's not even something that people see, basically. Um, and so it's a total commodity that way. And um, you, we just talked about the returns on assets and stuff like that being so poor. On the other hand, the capital allocation and all of that seems very rational compared to when you look at companies today, right? They're not pursuing growth that way. They realize they're in a pretty poor business. They know the difficulties. They're honest and open about talking about those difficulties. They're basically shrinking the business. They're buying back stock. They're talking about getting down inventories, closing their worst performing um, mills, stuff like that. That's all the stuff you want to see with a net net. And this does give you an idea of how you buy things based on assets. When you see this kind of thing happening, you buy something that basically has no earnings. Mm -hmm. And I know people don't like that today and think about it that way, but this is what Buffett bought a lot of times is things that did not look cheap on a PE basis, but were very cheap versus assets. Um, and part of his success did depend on getting in at this low price versus assets. Mm -hmm. You know, he's always said it was a mistake. I have, I'm less sure. Like, if he had built this business without Berkshire, would it have been a success? Yeah, but if you look at the record, it would have been easier for him. There's no doubt it would have been a lot easier. And, he, and of course, he didn't have to leave the mills open for this long, for 20 years after this. But if you look at the first few years, part of the performance of Berkshire, it's now a very small part. It's like a couple percent. But part of the reason why Berkshire's stock performance has been better than its book value growth is because he bought something that was trading at a deep discount to book value, and then he turned it into something that had a premium to book value and still to this day has a slight premium to book value. Mm -hmm. So doing that did improve results, especially early on. So it did matter that he took over something that was cheap versus book value, you know, and that it was part of the success that he had, the yeah. reallocation of capital. That's kind of what I think of it as. When you like look at it from a thousand foot overview, though, it does make a lot of sense. Again, with hindsight being our friend, but the fact that, okay, the business was declining, but they were doing everything right about it wasn't burning a crazy amount of cash. It just was kind of sitting there, I guess you could say. And they changed up the capital allocation. You know, they wanted to reduce inventory, buy back stock, pay back dividends. Yeah, the only problem dividends. I see with this is the competitive position was terrible. Mm. Um, so honestly, management was not bad for a net net. The balance sheet was not bad for what you were getting. The, I mean, all that stuff. The only thing I can see here is that the competitive position was really, really poor. You were buying into a poor industry. The industry economics were not good. And the competitive position of this company specifically, its cost position versus others was really bad. Uh, so I can't think of situations where I bought into net nets like that. On the other hand, many of the other things do check the box that are actually a lot better than what people would expect with a net net. This was a really pretty good balance sheet. Management was doing a lot of the right things, which is not usually what you see. Um, they were honest about communicating how difficult the situation was and all that, but it was not a good, but the business problems were serious. The microeconomic problems were really serious, you know, which is the scary part. Yeah, it is. And a lot of times that isn't, uh, when I look at that and sometimes that is what their problem is, but I'd say a lot more often it's management problems and things like that. Um, sometimes it's a control company. Sometimes it's management that's paying themselves a lot doing irrational things with capital allocation, stuff like that. But sometimes it isn't as bad a business as this. This is a really difficult business. Because if you think about it, I mean, 
this wasn't like a small company or something that it, this is it had a long history of earning money in the past uh so it it was literally because of how bad its competitive position was and how bad the industry was those are really the two things that were harming it it was poorly positioned that way um so it was actually very big for a net net if you adjust for inflation and all that you don't see net as the size outside of trouble times in the early 60s was not troubled in terms of stock market valuations. Got it. Cool. Well, thank you so much to everybody for tuning with both of us here today. I can't wait to go over the rest of the investments in this book. Uh, buy his book. Go to Amazon.com, type in capital allocation. I'm also going to put the link in the description. Make sure you hit that subscribe button both on YouTube and the podcast side of things. Thank you so much for all the support, and we will see you in the next podcast.